So if we are all successful and we catch half the money, then you're talking about changing the dynamics of global poverty. Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Today's guest is Gary Kalman. Gary is the former executive director of the FACT Coalition and the director of the new U.S. Office of Transparency International. I want to give you a brief overview of today's interview. Kickback's Matthew Stevenson and Gary Kalman are going to talk about how Gary became who he is today. They'll take a deep dive into the work of the FACT Coalition and give us insights into recent developments in regards to beneficial ownership legislation. And lastly, Gary is going to tell us about the plans he has for the work of Transparency International's United States office. Enjoy the interview and over to Matthew and Gary. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Gary Kalman, who is currently the executive director of the FACT Coalition, a Washington-based non-governmental organization that focuses principally on issues related to illicit finance, and who is soon to start a new position, or depending on when this airs, may have already started a new position, as the director of the Washington, D.C. Office of Transparency International. So, Gary, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Maybe we can start out just by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and your own journey to where you are now. So how did you become interested in issues related to corruption, illicit financial flows, money laundering, and so forth? And uh, what path brought you to your current positions? So uh, I began uh, shortly after college uh, working on a series of campaigns. I, one of my first jobs was in, in Michigan, where I was working on an environmental bonding issue and, uh, and also a Make Polluters Pay initiative. Uh, we were massively outspent, uh, and there were in those days no rules on what you could spend on campaigns. And that got me interested in the financing of campaigns, the financing of government. Uh, Back in 2005, I came to D.C. to work on ethics and uh, anti-corruption issues for U.S. PERG, and it was right around the time of the Jack Abramoff scandal. Uh, for folks that don't remember that, uh, somebody it was a Uber lobbyist who was spreading around money fairly liberally, uh, buying tickets and bribing legislators. Um, so I more I got very interested in how the ethics uh, operations in Congress work, or at that point didn't work. Funny story was during the entire Jack Abramoff scandal, the entire period which lasted about two or three years of the investigation. In that Congress, the ethics committee for the House, despite the implication of numerous members of Congress, the House ethics committee met approximately zero times. They, not only didn't they do an investigation, they didn't even meet on whether to do an investigation, to initiate an investigation. And so I worked with uh, then Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, and uh, a few other members of Congress where we developed a proposal for the Office of Congressional Ethics, which was the first independent office to look into congressional ethics complaints. Uh, and We focused on that, uh, launched a campaign. We had bipartisan opposition, but at the end of the day, we ended up winning by one vote. And that office is operating today and is considered to be um, a fairly well-run and an office with high integrity. 
so that's how I got into the the issues. Uh, and what it's not a long or a big leap, if you will, from the ethics of Congress into looking at broader issues of illicit finance, which is what brought me uh, to the FACT Coalition. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the FACT Coalition? I think many of our listeners may be familiar with that organization and the work that it's done on a variety of issues, but for other people, especially outside the United States, they might be a bit less familiar with it. So talk a little bit about that organization and its major initiatives in the area of illicit finance and and related topics. So uh, the FAT Coalition stands for the Financial Accountability and Corporate Transparency Coalition. Uh, It was the coming together of a number of NGOs, uh, international uh, development and aid groups, uh, human rights organizations, recognizing that corruption is a leading factor uh, in driving global poverty and propping up dictators who were able to use the stolen funds to pay off uh, security forces and engage in a variety of human rights abuses, arms trafficking done through secret finance and corruption. And so trying to figure out what is what are some of the ways we could go and attack that. Um, the interesting sort of revelation came out of a series of hearings that the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, which is a subcommittee in the United States Senate that was led by then-Senator Carl Levin. And what he found is not that it may be easy in certain countries to steal money. Uh, The budgets are not public. No one knows really what's coming in and going out other than the president or the senior leadership. But when you're stealing a few hundred dollars, it's easy to stash under your mattress or in your backyard. When you're stealing billions of dollars, then you need a place to put it. And what, was, what the Levin investigations found was that most of the money, or a good chunk of the money, I should say, uh, was coming to the United States because our laws allow for secret finance for anonymous companies to be able to move and launder money with impunity. So. Those groups came together and formed the FACT Coalition as a way to move U.S. policy to uncover the illicit finance that's being parked here as a way of impacting uh, global corruption. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, Senator Levin's uh, uh, committee. One of our previous guests on kickback was Elise Bean, who I suspect you probably know from that world. So those of our listeners who haven't listened to that episode yet, once you're finished with this one, go back and listen to uh, Elise's interview, who will talk a lot more about that process. But I want to pick up with the work that the FACT Coalition and you have been doing specifically on the, that issue of anonymous companies, because I know that the FACT Coalition does a lot of things, but probably what it's best known for, at least right now in the United States, is the work that, that organization has done pushing for the passage of a new law regulating anonymous companies in the United States. There have been efforts in this area in the United States going back at least 10 or 15 years, and for a long time it didn't look like anything was going to happen. Just within the last year or two, there are some encouraging signs, and I don't want to jinx anything, but there are some encouraging signs that at least the issue is getting more traction, and there's a greater possibility, though certainly not the guarantee, of actual legislative reform in this area. But your, your expertise on this is much deeper than mine, so can you fill, fill me and our listeners in a little bit more about how this issue looks and how it has changed over the last decade or so? So uh, just to begin on the issue of beneficial ownership, because most people it's not common terminology. Um, right now in the United States, people don't necessarily understand this, but you don't need to name who owns a company when you form it when you form that company. 
while Delaware, Nevada, Wyoming get most of the bad press, uh, Delaware in particular, it's actually no state in the country uh, knows uh, no state in the country actually collects beneficial ownership information. In fact, a few years ago, South Dakota realized that its laws were just as weak as Delaware's. You would think that they wouldn't want the illicit cash, the dirty money flowing through their state, and so they would tighten up those laws. No, instead they hired a public, relation firm, public relations firm to advertise that they offer just as much secrecy as Delaware, and the number of companies registering there escalated as exponentially. What uh, so what our law would do is a very simple but what we believe is an effective way of reining in and disrupting the current money laundering system in the world, and that is when you register a company, you have to name the natural person who owns and controls the company. Not that a company owns a company or a lawyer who filed the paperwork is the, on the paper or uh, as is, uh, which you can see on a YouTube video of a woman going into Delaware after the Panama, release of the Panama Papers and registering uh, a company in the name of her cat, Suki. And if you have time and want a good laugh, Suki Delaware Anonymous Companies, and you will see a three-minute video of somebody registering a company in the name of their cat. Why is this a problem? Let me give you one example, because I think sometimes examples are a little bit easier than sort of academic descriptions. Uh, the, one of the more famous cases is that of Teodoro Obiang in um, Equatorial Guinea. And he is uh, one of the, I think he may actually be the longest serving dictator in the world, if not one of them. And he has stolen billions of dollars uh, from that country. What his son, he and his son did is they actually set up anonymous companies in California and Florida, I believe, maybe also in Delaware, uh, through which that's where they parked the money. So they sent it uh, to the United States. They set up these companies. The companies then held the money. They directed it through their agents, which lawyers or other corporate formation agents, to use the money to buy them various things, including a mansion in Malibu, a jet, uh, Michael Jackson's glove at one of the auctions. Uh, so they used that for personal gain, um, and, but they did it for years being undetected because if anybody looked into who was behind it, all they could find out is the company with no ownership or this lawyer or corporate formation agent listed. Um, that country, just so people know, because of its oil, has one of the highest GDPs of any country in Africa, and yet it has one of the lowest uh, per capita incomes in all of Africa, largely because of the drain of the money and the theft from the president and his family. So this has real-life implications. Uh, people lack health care. They lack education. They have one of the worst, Equatorial Guinea has one of the worst education systems in all of Africa. Um, and they actually have the money. It's just being stolen. So if we could get that money back to them or keep it in that country, then you would uh, have an enormous impact on poverty rates and economics. And the bill that the FAT Coalition and other groups and many members now of the United States Congress have been advocating would require, if I understand it correctly, the when a company is formed, that the information on the actual human beings, the so-called beneficial owners, be provided and continuously updated, and that if the the owner of the company doesn't have a U.S. identification, a U.S driver's license or passport, I believe there's a requirement that the party registering the company verify that they that they understand who the, that they know who the beneficial ownership beneficial owner, excuse me, is that roughly correct? Yes, uh, foreign passport or other verification. So the 
yeah, so that's basically what the bill would do. Um, and uh, we think that two things will happen. Some, uh, well, let me say it this way. Uh, a number of bad actors will stop using the United States, which would be a great thing. And then once the United States does it, we actually, Europe's already done, doing this. They're headed towards this. They're going to have directories for all 28 member nations and even the economic uh, area. Um, uh, by 2021, I think, is when they're supposed to do it. Uh, the UK is even requiring its overseas territories and crown dependencies. So for folks that are familiar with the countries that are known sort of secrecy jurisdictions, we're talking about, you know, the Cayman Islands and Guernsey and Jersey and Bermuda and all those, right? So, um, so the world is moving toward transparency, which means that the United States, until we do this, is the recipient um, of the largest amount of illicit cash because it's easier to stash it here than anywhere else. So yes, we think that some will no longer use the United States, which is great. Others, uh, and believe it or not, um, many criminals are smart, some are stupid, uh, and so they will continue to use it and we'll be able to catch them. And how do I know that this is true? Well, the government a few years ago set up something called geographic targeting orders. And what these are is it's a pilot program operated out of the U.S. Treasury Department that requires, and what they did is they picked just a, a few cities um, where they believed that illicit cash was buying real estate. So you have high-end cash-financed real estate deals in these cities where the owners, if they're trying to use a company, would have to name their beneficial owner. The result, the early results from that included one statistic that said 30% of the transactions involved people that had suspicious activities reports filed on them. That doesn't mean that they're all guilty criminals, but it does mean that somebody thought there was something fishy about it, and a number of them are going to be criminals. So there are some that are just going to continue to do this. We can catch them. There's others that are going to stop doing it or moving uh, their money elsewhere, um, and we can begin to shut down the avenues through which they hide their money and make it much more difficult uh, to launder money in the world. So you mentioned many countries in Europe have already moved in the direction of greater beneficial ownership transparency. Not all of them, but the U.S. is at this point in, in among the, the wealthy Western developed countries, the U.S. seems to be kind of a laggard on this issue. The United Kingdom is interesting because it makes its beneficial ownership information public. There's a public register, and I believe some of the other European jurisdictions, and I think, I believe the EU is moving in that direction as well. My understanding is that the current proposals on the table in the United States would not require the beneficial ownership information provided at the moment of company formation to be publicly accessible, but rather would be accessible to law enforcement or government agencies or potentially to financial institutions or others that need to conduct due diligence on customers. And as you know probably better than anyone, there's a lively debate in the community that thinks about these issues about whether or how important it is that the beneficial ownership information be public or whether there, it might be better or at least just as good to maintain the confidentiality of that information except for government agencies or private actors under specified circumstances conducting due diligence on customers. Do you have a view on that? How important do you think it is or how, how much additional value would there be, if any, of at least at some point taking the beneficial ownership information that we hope will be collected if these bills pass and making it publicly accessible? So uh, 
Personally, I think that public registries uh, serve an important purpose. I think the information should be. We're not talking about deep financial information about a business or business purpose or lists of, you know, every employee or, you know, tax information, information that many people would consider to be a little bit more private or more probing. This is literally just who is the person uh, that stands behind the company. The value, the value in my mind of a public registry is that you have a lot more eyes on it. Law enforcement has limited resources, and what we're finding in the UK, for example, with their public registry, is that journalists, academics, NGOs, others looking into the data are finding things that law enforcement just doesn't have the chance to find. And connections between companies that are being used for nefarious purposes. Uh, they're able to refer those to law enforcement and you can take action on those. Also, they're finding problems with the database. Look, every database, no database, let me say it this way, is going to be perfect information. You're going to have errors, mistakes, and they're finding those. And what they're finding is various patterns which can be corrected because you can make changes to the database based on the findings. So we think that a public database is going to have more impact and better information. That said, the United States Directory, uh, what we're looking at right now in the bills, um, it is a compromise bill. We think it's critically important to get them to get this information in the, the directory set up in the first place. We can have a later debate on whether or not or if that ever goes public. Uh, for now, it is not going to be. But we are going to make the information available to law enforcement, local, state, national law enforcement, and to those private institutions that have legally required, legally mandated anti-money laundering responsibilities. And that makes sense because if you're requiring somebody to do due diligence on their customers and requiring them to make sure that they are not uh, engaged in money laundering, we should give them all the tools that they need to make sure that they're doing it effectively. So to begin with, it is a compromise bill. We think it is still an enormous step forward. The United States has never done anything like this before, and so we believe that uh, the current bill uh, would have an enormous impact. So one line of skeptical response to all of these efforts that I'd love to get your thoughts about doesn't dispute that this is generally a good thing to do, but questions whether it will make that much of an impact in the Teodoro Obiangs of the world. So yes, there are some stupid criminals out there. There might be some relatively unsophisticated parties that have a bunch of money that, you know, they've heard, oh, I can just do this in a secret company and it'll all be fine. But if the starting point for you and for others in pursuing this line of work was concerned about the Teodoro Obiangs of the world or the other kleptocrats or oligarchs or whomever, the skeptical line, and as I imagine you've thought a lot about this, I'm sure you can anticipate the question, is these people are sophisticated enough that they are going to find other ways to do it. They'll lie. They'll get a friend of theirs to list themselves as the beneficial owner. They'll find some, you know, sleazy or unethical registration agent who will claim to have verified the beneficial ownership information hasn't really and pay them a lot of money in exchange for their services and that the marginal impact this line of critical uh, uh, questioning goes on the hyper-corrupt of the world will not be that great. So, you know, not a bad thing, but not really a game changer. Is this something 
that's of concern to you? Do you have a sense based on the work that you've done in this area, how much of a marginal impact this would have, how easy or difficult it would be for these sophisticated kleptocrats and oligarchs to get around the new obstacle that you hope you'll be able to put in their way? So of all the arguments that we get, and we get some crazy arguments against the bill, um, I think that that is the right question, right? Because uh, it's a legitimate question. Um, we get some, you know, we're asking for four pieces of information, a name, and ad- uh, name address, date of birth, and, uh, you know, a driver's license or passport number. And people talk about how this is going to cost every business, you know, hundreds of dollars every year, and collectively it's going to cost the, I think there was one estimate that it's going to cost uh, people over 10 billion, the business community over $10 billion to implement. For the record, in the UK, the average business, the ongoing cost for small businesses to update this information is two pounds, which translates to about $2.50 a year. So anyway, I appreciate that this is a legitimate question I want to take seriously. Let me say a few things on this. One is that, uh, first off, we believe it will have an enormous impact, and let me explain why. One is that we currently open, we have open access through the legal channels in our system. And what does that mean? It means that when Global Witness, one of our coalition members in an NGO that many people may be familiar with um, that works on anti-corruption issues, they went in and did a undercover sting in, in New York and they picked 13 lawyers randomly uh, and went and sent in somebody who was clearly representing, uh, I think it was an oil minister in Africa who was clearly corrupt, right? My boss wants to move in millions. He's a civil servant that doesn't really make a lot of money. Uh, he would prefer that his name not be associated with any of the documents. Every sort of red, you know, whistle and whatever you can imagine, bell and whistle signaling this is corrupt money. 12 of 13 of these lawyers said, here's how I would do it. And they talked about setting up a series and layered structure of anonymous companies. These are not fly-by-night lawyers at two-bit law firms. These are some of the most respected law firms in New York City and in the country. These guys make a lot of money as senior partners in the firm. One of the lawyers was then the head of the American Bar Association. If there was a law that was passed that said you have to collect the beneficial ownership information, there is zero doubt in anyone's mind that those people would have said, thank you very much, but this is not for me. I'm not going to do this because they would not risk their reputation, their job, their career, their position to help a single client and move money through the United States illegally. So one thing is you cut off legal access, easy legal access. The second thing, you say, well, but they're still scammy lawyers. Absolutely true. But what you're now doing is currently, if an agent from Belarus calls up a lawyer, as they did in Oregon, and orders 100 companies to be formed, and by the way, just put your own name, you the lawyer, on the corporate formation form, and then calls up a month later and says, could you dissolve those 100 companies and set up a new 100 companies? The lawyer that's doing clearly this is a money laundering operation. No one sets up 100 companies, dissolves them a month later to set up a new 100 companies. They're just trying to stay ahead of the law. The lawyer had absolutely no responsibility to ask any questions about that. And if law enforcement came knocking on his door, he could say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not responsible for knowing it, and I've done nothing wrong. After our law passes, that lawyer is now on the hook. So they would have to be willing to go to jail themselves 
which means that you now have an accountable person filing the papers. And while that person may not be the beneficial owner, there's people willing to lie, law enforcement now is somebody they can hold accountable, and that person is going to know more about what the rest of the food chain looks like than somebody who's literally going, if I know anything, then I'll be liable, so I don't want to know anything. So we believe that it would have that. The last thing I'll say on this is it is estimated by global financial integrity that roughly a trillion dollars leaves the developing world every year in illicit finance. Let's say, for example, well, the amount of global aid going from the developed world to the developing world is about $140 billion a year. Let's say that we pass this law and it largely fails. 80% of the money just flows out of the country just like it always has, right? You get a 20% on a test, that's a fail. Like that's not even a close F, that's a deep F, right? That would be the equivalent if we were actually able to recover and return you know, 20% of the money, only 20%, that'd be the equivalent of more than doubling the amount of aid given in the world to the developing world. So if we are all successful and we catch half the money, then you're talking about changing the dynamics of global poverty. So we believe that this is a step towards huge and potential dynamics in upsetting the money laundering in the world and changing the politics of global poverty. I want to ask you one more question along this line and then shift gears to talk about your vision for Transparency International's work in the United States. Um, and it picks up on the example that you gave of the lawyer in Oregon who's asked to form 100 companies and dissolve them and form 100 more. So the focus of the current version of the bill, as I understand it, is, as you said a moment ago, on requiring at the point of company formation the disclosure of certain basic identifying information on the human beings who own the company. There had been, as part of this debate, at an earlier point, I believe, an additional requirement imposed on other gatekeepers. So not just financial institutions, which already have the responsibility to report suspicious transactions, but on other gatekeepers, including potentially attorneys, not just to you know provide information on the people who are forming a company, but when they see transactions that appear to indicate potential money laundering risks to be under similar sorts of reporting requirements as financial institutions, if I, if I have this right. And I believe the United Kingdom did something like this, and some other European jurisdictions have done something like this as well. This, I gather, was another point of controversy in the United States. The American Bar Association and others raised concerns about uh, duties that attorneys owe to their clients with respect to confidentiality and, and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about this? Again, it's related but distinct issue about to whom should suspicious transi transaction reporting requirements apply? How much beyond the traditional bankers and other financial institutions should those requirements be expanded? Should they include lawyers? Should it include real estate agents? Should it include other kinds of entities or intermediaries or gatekeepers. What are your views on that? I believe that we should expand due diligence requirements, um, but don't take it from me. The uh, Financial Action Task Force, which is sort of the recognized uh, standard setter for anti-money laundering laws, uh, the United States helped found that organization, uh, believes and has said that uh, due diligence requirements for what is commonly referred to as the gatekeepers to the financial system. So any way you interact, so if you, you know, as you said, the real estate agents, the lawyers, I'd add the accountants, um, you know, would be, would fall under that 
sort of rubric. Uh, they have, uh, through their evaluations, and they do evaluations of each country periodically, um, and in the evaluation of the United States now, both of the last two evaluations have pointed out that the significant gaps in the United States anti-money laundering laws, which otherwise are pretty good compared to the rest of the world, but the huge gaps that sort of undermine our regime is the fact that we don't collect beneficial ownership information and we do not have due diligence requirements for the rest of the gatekeepers. Um, if we're really looking to close down the system, then we do have to look at some system that involves having gatekeepers take a look at their, you know, who's asking them to do what, and at what point do they need to file or give a heads up to law enforcement. That's not in the current bill. Um, look, again, we have decided that we're going to take one step at a time, uh, as you often have to do, is get people sort of educated on these issues. What is the breadth of the issue? Let's get the beneficial ownership directory set up, and then we can have a conversation about what follows. Well, the way we refer to beneficial ownership um, legislation is the following. I think of it as a foundational reform. And what do I mean by that? Well, think about a house. If you only build the foundation, you can't live in it. But if you build a house without a foundation, it's going to fall apart. Beneficial ownership is the foundation, on top of which we then need to build a robust regime to make sure that we're um, attacking money laundering and corrupt illicit finance. But without beneficial ownership, you could heighten sanctions, you could increase penalties, you could do any number of things. But if you don't know who's behind the companies, then you're never going to actually get at what you need to do. So those are sort of the two different layers. Just one clarification before we move on. So when I was asking about suspicious transaction reporting and you yep. referred to the importance of doing due diligence, my understanding is, although they're related, the requirement to perform due diligence on a client and the requirement to file a suspicious transaction report are not the same thing necessarily, right? So one might think that lawyers should do due diligence on the clients before they accept them. Some would say, especially some in the legal community, what might say there's a difference between that and saying on an existing client, if they're doing something that looks shady, that you report that to the Department of the Treasury the same way a bank would report a suspicious transaction their client was engaged in, correct? Um, yes, although I think the legislation... You would hope, and we, re we recognize this does not happen, but you would hope that if people have suspicions that they are about to engage with illicit actors, that they would not want to do business with those. And so you can say, sure, lawyers, accountants, real estate agents should do their own due diligence. In fact, I think there's some ethics rules in the bar that they are supposed to do certain amounts of due diligence and they're not supposed to take clients that are shady or dirty or suspected to be dirty. But you don't do anything with that information. And so if it ends up, there's no sort of, unless there's actual evidence that, yes, I knew that I was dealing with a bad guy, there's no accountability in the system. So the way in which the banks have the accountability is, um, is twofold. One is that they do have to file these reports um, with uh, law enforcement if they find something suspicious, so law enforcement has a wealth of information to try and go after bad guys. And then there's the back end rules, which is if you do end up helping somebody, you know, in the financial system that's a bad guy, you can be held accountable if you didn't do appropriate due diligence. So for the banks, it's a little bit clearer. For others, how you would have that second layer of accountability, I think, is a little bit less clear. Um, so that's why I'm sort of bringing together the suspicious activity reports. But yes, you are you are right that they are two different things. So let me turn to the work you're going to 
be doing going forward for Transparency International in the United States. So this isn't the place to get into it, but as some of our, list- of our listeners may know, Transparency International's presence in the United States over the last several years has been somewhat complicated. There was a, an official chapter. That chapter, for reasons, again, that we're not going to get into, was no longer certified for a period of time, and there was some discussion about what Transparency International's presence would be like in the United States going forward. I gather the decision was taken that as of now, there won't be a formal chapter, but there will be an office, which you will direct, that will basically have the leading role uh, with respect to TI's U.S. presence. And I'd very much like to know, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know, what your vision is for Transparency International's presence in the United States in, let's say, the next three to five years. What would you place high on your agenda in terms of the issues you think that a global anti-corruption organization like Transparency International should be emphasizing in the U.S. context at this moment? So the um, there's a lot uh, to consider uh, in the United States in terms of corruption in today's world. Uh, and so I think it's an exciting time to bring Transparency International into the United States and expand its voice and the resources that it can bring. Um, there are a number of organizations, you know, unlike many countries that Transparency International is in, where TI may be the only organization that's sort of a robust anti-corruption organization, the United States actually has a number of organizations that are working on different pieces of the anti-corruption agenda. Where there are fewer resources and voices speaking up and where TI, because of its international presence, can play a very significant role is the following, and I think we'll be prioritizing these set of issues early on. And that is around the role of illicit finance and the U.S. as a facilitator of global, of global corruption. And what I mean by that is there's a set of issues. One, for example, is what we've been talking about is the beneficial ownership issue, is to see that through and get that law passed. Um, but also there's a, a number of issues around trade-based money laundering. Um, there are uh, issues around the gatekeepers, as you, as you mentioned. So the U.S. role, in, there's uh, looking at the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, there's a series of issues where there's less attention but critical in terms of looking at the larger anti-corruption agenda. And because of TI's presence in 100 countries in the world or whatever it is, has a unique voice and a unique ability to weigh in on those. Um, I think that we will want to be supporting the other anti-corruption efforts uh, around, you know, both sort of what people refer to as the legal and the illegal sides of uh, influence peddling, but the the rules around campaign finance and voter suppression and some of these other issues, uh, some of the core conflicts of interest, revolving door issues. Uh, there's no doubt that we will be working with groups that are working on those issues and want to be supportive. But where I think the true value of a new organization and a new voice coming to the United States is to fill that gap um, that allows illicit finance to flow through the United States and to make the United States a key player in illicit finance around the world. So that understanding of TI's role in the United States, which sounds very compelling to me, seems 
somewhat different, maybe substantially different from the role that most TI chapters or offices have in most countries in that the vision that you describe is more focused on the ways in which US actors facilitate global corruption are facilitating the activities of kleptocrats outside the United States than they are on corruption in the US government itself. Is that, a, is that a fair characterization of the difference in emphasis? I think that's mostly true. I do think that some of what we're talking about, though, will actually impact the United States government itself and United States corporations. Because you have to remember, United States corporations operate globally. Uh, and so making sure that their practices uh, are on the up and up. But here's also the difference, is if you're looking at some of the smaller economies, uh, their role in the international corruption space is different than the U.S. role. The dollar is the dominant you know, money in the world. Uh, the U.S., according to several studies right now, um, is the easiest place to launder money through secret companies and uh, through various structures. Uh, so we are, we are providing the kinds of protections for illicit actors um, around the globe. And because of our outsized role in that, it makes sense to take a look at what our laws here are about and how we can influence those. Do you feel like it would be an appropriate role going forward once you've assumed this position as a TI representative of the United States to comment on or criticize the U.S. government with res or U.S. particular U.S. government officials with respect to corruption in the U.S. government? Or do you feel like there are other organizations that are doing that and that TI's role is more to focus on these policy issues that affect things like illicit financial flows generally? Let me be very clear. Yep. Transparency International in the United States is going to focus uh, or is going to comment on uh, corruption in the United States government inside the United States. There, there will be, I mean, if you just look at the last, you know, 15 years of my career, I have been uh, extremely vocal um, about corruption in the United States. Uh, when we were, I mentioned earlier that in some of my early work, we passed the Office of Congressional Ethics. Um, and I think it was uh, an education for me because partisans on both sides think the other side is more corrupt. Just to be clear, there was strong bipartisan opposition to an office of, to have members vote, to have themselves overseen by an independent office was not liked by either side. We had to really work very hard and with the support of uh, leadership at the time, uh, we're able to get it through. So I, absolutely we need to speak out about the federal government, about state governments, about issues that are impacting the United States and the corruption here um, in our own country. I am not going to shy away from that, nor should TI. I think we should be very supportive of efforts. What I guess I'm saying is merely about how can an office that is being created here have the greatest impact on these issues. And to join on uh, just as a, as a signer to letters uh, on these issues could be helpful. And if to the extent that Transparency International's name adds value and heft to uh, an effort, we are more than happy to do that and we will be doing that. Um, but I also think that 
we need to take a look at where we can actually move policy ourselves and where we can have a unique role so we're not trying to either duplicate or compete with organizations that are already doing terrific work. I will say that one area that I do think uh, we can have an impact which is directly related to U.S. corruption is uh, around some of these issues which are very troubling, attacks on the whistleblower laws. Um, uh, the United States has uh, a very uh, strong, uh, if not complicated, uh, whistleblower regime in to protect whistleblowers, but there's a lot more we can do. Uh, we used to be the leaders. We're now falling behind. Some other countries have caught up in terms and, and are moving ahead, and we need to make sure that we continue to be on the cutting edge and move forward. So I think that that's an area, for example, where we can make sure that the, the U.S. government itself is being held accountable by protecting the whistleblowers. So I wanted to follow up on an aspect of this question. It actually relates also to the work that you've been doing at the FACT Coalition. And let me frame it in the following way. In the abstract, corruption or anti-corruption seems to be a nonpartisan or a bipartisan issue. People dislike corruption. And in general, if you ask people in the abstract, should we do more things to fight corruption? Should we throw out corrupt politicians or other officials from office? They'll, they'll say yes. As soon as it becomes particular and concrete, as soon as you're talking about the corruption of a particular administration or politician, there's often this dynamic where it becomes difficult to avoid partisanship or politicization. And so we don't need to beat around the bush too much about this. This is the United States right now in late 2019, almost 2020. Donald Trump is the president. There are a set of concerns about corruption in the current administration. And I imagine it's a challenge for an anti-corruption advocacy organization to, as you say, don't shy away from the issue, call it out, point out the failings, but at the same time, maintain its credibility as not a partisan organization, as an organization that focuses on an issue. So, and the reason I connected this to your work at the FACT Coalition is that seemed to be another area, that seemed to be an area where you and your colleagues and allies were quite successful in building a bipartisan or nonpartisan coalition of supporters. But again, there you were talking about a general policy issue. You weren't confronted with a situation where you had to address alleged corruption by a particular official or administration. So I realize I'm asking the question in a fairly abstract way. Maybe there's not a general way you can answer it, but I would love to get your thoughts on how you as someone with a lot of experience in this world of activism and advocacy balance the need to maintain a reputation for nonpartisanship or bipartisanship with what you just described as this obligation to speak out on genuine issues when you know, corruption rear, rears its ugly head. Can you say a little bit about whether that's a genuine challenge, and if so, how you manage it? I think it is increasingly a challenge. I mean, it's always been a little bit of a challenge, but I think it's increasingly a challenge um, given the issues in the current administration. Um, you know, we have managed to create uh, a a set of allies in support of our the particular bill around beneficial ownership that we've been talking about, in large part because we have sat down with uh, folks from across the political spectrum. We've identified people who can be messengers to those other audiences. There's an awful lot of distrust um, between the two sides, right? If right now, if a progressive goes to a conservative or a conservative goes to a progressive, the 
just the mere fact of who that person is sitting down across the table from them is going to make that partnership extremely difficult. And so we've tried to find ways and pathways in where trusted uh, messengers are going in and talking to their own sides. And then once there's some trust built, then you can come together. Um, you know, there's not a lot of coalitions or bills in Congress that have the support from, say, Dow Chemical and Friends of the Earth, uh, right? Um, you know, we currently have the Trump administration in support of the beneficial ownership bill that was being sponsored by Carolyn Maloney, who is now the chair of the oversight committee that will be involved in impeachment. That doesn't happen <laughs> on very many issues. And so I do think it's a, it's a tightrope that you're walking. Uh, you need to be careful and thoughtful about how you move policy. Um, but we have also attacked some of what we think are the uh, opaque and potentially dangerous aspects of the, the tax bill um, that was passed in 27 that clearly had partisan, very strong partisan feelings on both sides. We were unabashedly opposed to the bill. We think that it opens up the door to offshoring and secret uh, tax dodging. Um, but we were able to do it in a way that we still, on the beneficial ownership side, were able to talk to the other side. So yes, it is difficult, but I don't believe it's impossible. Uh, and I think that we can chart a pathway that calls out the corruption for what it is that we see, uh, while also managing to move forward policies that are actually going to make change um, and, and bring about real reform. So we're nearing the end of our time. And thank you very much for being so willing to take time out of your busy schedule to speak to me. In the closing question I want to ask is, um, looking forward over the next decade or two, or if you imagine yourself speaking, which you probably are, at least uh, to some degree, to the next generation of people who had something like your profile coming into this world very concerned about some combination of international development, money laundering, tax justice, that cluster of issues that motivated you. Uh, you devoted so much time to not only beneficial ownership, but that was high on your list of issues. If you're going to list the next two, three, four big issues that you think are not yet maybe attracting as much attention, but they're the things that we're already starting to see some discussion about, they're the big things on the horizon that uh, the next generation of Gary Kalman's are going to need to be working on uh, in, again, the next, let's say, decade or two. What would they be? What advice would you have to the next generation of people with the same set of concerns that, that you have and that I share with you? What, 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 are, the, what are the big topics? Uh, so some of the things that, uh, you know, we are sort of looking at post, if we get our bill passed, and what are sort of the next things on the horizon. I think that there is um, a lot uh, around international trade issues. I think that is one of the big issues, the trade-based money laundering and trade issues. Um, you know, uh, there was in, I think it was a New York Times article or whatever, how President Maduro in Ver Venezuela apparently owns, or at least owned at one point, a port in Long Island. Um, we have no idea what's going on there. Uh, I think that there's a lot uh, to be looking at in the trade area. Um, I mentioned before on the whistleblower space, I think that 
there has been long-standing bipartisan support for whistleblowers. Um, both, you know, you had folks blowing the whistle on corporate malfeasance, so you had more progressives sort of looking at corporate accountability, as well as some on the conservative side looking at what they considered government waste, fraud, and abuse, if you will, and so whistleblower support there. I think what we're seeing right now, attacks on those whistleblowers, that is a huge issue um, because you need truth tellers and you need people who are, be, who are willing to step forward. You know, uh, we see more and more movies around whistleblowers. Uh, we were just talking about that before this podcast. But I think that that is a, a second issue that uh, we're going to need to take a look at. And the third, which may be, you know, uh, something that's a little bit off from where well, everything we've been talking about, but since you're talking about the future and what is sort of the, the vision, uh, is I think we need to make sure that we maintain um, the integrity and the independence of the media. I think that we're seeing more and more attacks uh, on media, and I don't think, similar to my concerns about whistleblowers, is you need people who, uh, an independent media to make sure that you're holding powerful actors accountable, and we're seeing attacks on that and discrediting uh, various media sources. So that would be another area that I don't have a particular solution or policy to go after that right now, but for folks that are the next generation of me, I would think, and there's issues right now, I'm not saying there aren't, um, but we need to sort of make sure that we maintain that independence and that integrity. Um, because otherwise it's, it's very difficult for a democracy to survive. Well, great. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Again, this has been an episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast, and my guest today has been Gary Kalman, currently in a transitional period, uh, finishing up his work as the executive director of the FAT Coalition, beginning his work as the director of Transparency International's Washington, D.C. office. Gary, I really appreciate your taking uh, the time today to speak to me and to share your experience and insights with me and with our listeners. Glad to do it. Thank you very much, Gary Kalman, for coming on the show. And before we wrap, I want to give you a bit of background information. If you want to know more about Carl Levine's work, you can read Elise Bean's book, Financial Exposure. Did you know that it's easier to form a company in the United States than it is to get a library card? The Fact Coalition does know that because that was a quote from their website, and I'll recommend you to surf over there and check them out. It was also certainly easy for Natasha, the owner of Suki the Cat, to open a business for Suki. And that is not any business, it's the She Sells Seashells LLC. That's right, the She Sells Seashells LLC. Now everyone at home, please, three times, She Sells Seashells LLC. You can have a look at how easy it was for Natasha to open that company on YouTube. There will be a link in the show notes. What else? The NGO that conducted the undercover investigation in New York is called Global Witness. The New York Times reported about Global Witness's undercover stint in 2016, and there's extensive coverage on Global Witness's own website. I think they make a very good case for beneficial ownership legislation and a public registry. During the last week, we got a message from one of our listeners. Eric, thank you for your message. Eric is from Venezuela, and he asked if we could cover topics that are related to Venezuela. And our answer to that is, of course, we would love to. However, our time and resources are limited, since as of now we're all doing kickback in our free time. But please feel free to send us suggestions for topics and interview guests, and we'll certainly take them into consideration for one of our episodes. If you want more of kickback and have a few extra dollars, you can support us on Patreon. 
and thank you very much for everyone who already is a patron. That's Kickback for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Kickback is made by Matthew Stevenson, Niels Kürbis, Christopher Starke and me, Jonathan Kleinpass, with music from Kehan Golkar. Goodbye.